Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey guys, we got an ad. It's from superyaki.com. If you haven't been there yet, you really should go. It's this really cool website. You can go there. They have shirts for really great movies, also bad movies. But, you know, the movies that film Twitter says you shouldn't like. But they're a bunch of idiots because, of course, you like National Treasure. Of course, you think Judy Greer is awesome. Of course, you want pins with Sofia Coppola, which I think is down okay with film Twitter. And also Jordan Peele, definitely okay with film Twitter. Go to superyaki.com and buy your shit. I know Phil has a bunch of stuff from superyaki.com. I have a bunch of shirts. I've got a I've got a written and directed by Ryan Johnson shirt because I'm obviously a big uh, Last Jedi fan. Uh, they got great Crimson uh, Crimson Peak shirts, which is a fucking great movie that nobody talks about nearly enough. Uh, their shirts are really soft. They're eco friendly, water based inks. They ship with compostable poly mailers for environmentally friendly alternative to online shopping. Uh, it's a great website. They're a great company. Uh, Karen Hahn, past and future guest, is uh, has a couple shirts that she's done with them as well, which is fantastic. Um, and as a special gift to you, listeners can save 10% on their order with the code SUPERFRIEND, all caps, no spaces, that's SUPERFRIEND at checkout. Can you believe this? You listen to our podcast and you get 10% off shirts and sweatshirts and pins and bags from superyaki.com. This is a win-win for everybody and we get none of that. Zero. <laughs> um, it's superyaki. That's S U P E R Y A K I dot com. See you at the movies. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's nineteen ninety nine. Podcast like it.
Hello and welcome okay. to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from Storage B here in 2020. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phyllis Gove. And with us today to talk about Office Space is Zach Bornstein. Uh, he wrote on Saturday Night Live and Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, big on Twitter. Great to, <laughs> great to have you. Um, the, the oft retweeted Zach Bornstein. <laughs> Thank you for having me. That's very, that's very kind. Zach, do you have one of those Twitters where like you put something out and then you have like the scroll of people retweeting your shit? It's just, it look, it's like, like a stock ticker. Those are, that happens like once in a while and it's like truly addictive when it happens. Oh like God. that's like, I like just like sit there like on the toilet, just like flicking my thumb until it hurts. And then it's just the best feeling. And then I don't get that for weeks and weeks. And then I'm just like mad at myself because I'm just like chasing that high. That doesn't sound unhealthy, to be honest. That sounds like a, it sounds like a, sounds like a good motivator to write to, to write hilarious tweets. I guess so. Yeah, I always think about it as very unhealthy, but maybe it's. I mean, it does force you. Um, but I will also say too that your your Twitter feed also, um, along with obviously uh, some other people, but like it's making this this hellscape that we live in right now seem a little bit more tolerable. The fact that you can kind of take some of the air out of or, or the sort of the tension that, that exists right now is is really uh is is pretty amazing so oh thank you i if it makes you feel any better i'm just absorbing all that tension myself and i feel very <laughs> listen it's, it's like less tension for nightmare so, yeah you know, more tension for you that's fine you're like I'm just a tension sponge you're the jesus of the pandemic you are yeah you are dying for our stress <laughs> Um, <laughs> I turn uh, water into just COVID-infected fluid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's gross. Oh, that's um, gross. <laughs> but that's cool, dude. Uh, thank you, and thanks again for for being on. Um, I don't know the uh, the origin of of your love of office space. I don't know if Phil gave you a list or, or how you wound up becoming an our office space guy, but it is one of my favorite movies um, ever. And one of my favorite movies of this year. So uh, I'm thrilled that we get to talk about it. How did, um how did you come to office space in life and on this podcast? Well, I loved it so much like you. And as a, I remember as a kid, it was just like on TV all the time. And I yeah. think it came out when I was in, I can't remember what grade, but like, I, I mean, I was probably like 10 or something. I, I don't remember. And it was, I just remember thinking like, this is like, it's just brilliant. This is perfect. And I was very nervous that it wouldn't hold up because, you know, you have all those movies from like when you were a kid or a teenager or whatnot, and then you watch them now and it's like, oh no. Yeah. Uh, I watched it again last night. Holds up. Incredible. It's so like funny. it, so good. And it like has like, um, it just like it's so specific to that time, but like the like all the like I don't know the ethos of it feels very modern still, like very much the like soul suckingness and all the parody of it just like feels still very like fresh, which is impossible to do for something over twenty years ago. I I, I completely agree. I would also say too, watching it again yesterday, I I, I also completely understand why it was not a hit. In the like, or, or or and how hard it is to market this movie. Like, I know that one of the bigger issues that that Mike Judge and in all the stuff that I've read had with it was the marketing. He thought that that poster of the guy with all the post-it notes was 
ineffective and mm. that it made people be, they didn't really know what the movie was about there were people that thought it looked like big bird there was all sorts of shit about the concept. <laughs> like it just they didn't really know what to do with it and it's it's a fascinating thing to like read about some of how like so you know 20th century fox had just come off of uh there's something about mary which was a mm-hmm. big hit right and they were thinking that mike judge could be another fairly brother or something to that effect um he's not he's far more acerbic far more cutting there's a lot more edge to his work than there is uh in the fairly brothers but i understand that studio i can understand that studio mentality of why they thought that's what this was going to be um mm-hmm. but this movie is a lot more sharp than than i, I mean, yeah i guess you're forgetting the subtle parody of um stuck on you by the Fairley Brothers. <laughs> you're right, you're right, you're right. I forgot about that one. And, and so Picking apart matter, society at the seams, yeah. <laughs> you know what's weird about this movie? Yeah. All right, so uh, going back to what Zach said about it being on TV, this movie was on Comedy Central every day. Like, yes. period, end of story. They played it every day. It was the right move. It was it was the funniest thing they had to offer at any given time. Um it uh, it was also on on premium all the time. So like the you know the R rated jokes in this movie stuck in my head as well because you can you know though it was constantly on HBO or whatever. Um, in terms of like what you were saying, Phil, not being a hit, this movie, and I'm sure you're gonna get into it when you talk about the context. Like this this movie didn't make a dent. Like this movie didn't. It's a 1999 movie that just didn't come out in 1999. People didn't know about <laughs> it. And every once in a while, a movie like this uh, happens, right? There's a, a a comedy that has no effect in the theater whatsoever and is later yep. found on home video. The other one that I uh, th- th- that came after this is Super Troopers, which had mm. no effect whatsoever in the theater and then became a massive kind of cult uh, movie – on home video and and on uh on cable and and premium so much so that like four or five years later broken lizard winds up become having a massive career and the same can be said for mike judge right if this movie doesn't have its post theatrical career we probably don't have silicon valley we probably don't have videocracy we probably don't have any uh might not even have king of the hill um as long as we did uh this could have just killed Mike Judge, and Mike Judge has proven to be like one of our most important and relevant original comedic voices. So mm-hmm. this has been a this, this really worked out well for everybody. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's interesting you say that. We've talked about this a little bit uh, on previous episodes, but it, it's worth repeating that you know this was a time when a movie could have a second life on on video. You know what I mean? That is not a thing anymore, really. Um, I mean, streaming VOD is is certainly something um and we could certainly get into uh you know the lack of residuals that we might be getting off of some of those things but i think that uh that, that there let's really not. is something to be said for <laughs> yeah, let's not. um there is something to be said for you know as someone who worked in in video stores through high school and 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 university um those movies that just blew up on video you know when you had people you couldn't keep them in the store you know, Office Space is one of those movies. Uh, Donnie Darko is one of those movies. And unfortunately, or depending on who you are, uh, Boondock Saints was one of those movies. Mm-hmm. Like movies where, you know, mm-hmm. they don't do anything in the theater, really. Not, I mean, this movie did make a profit, but not much of one. But, you know, it's, it's just really fascinating to see that. 
I looked. I saw it. I, I it, it had a ten million dollar budget, and it made twelve and a half million. And I was so surprised by that because it feels just like cultural relevance wise, it made a hundred million dollars, whereas <laughs> yeah. it like yeah. made zero. Like they probably lost. Some people lost money probably on this. It's just like it's so yeah. Well, and also it's, it's funny. Really, I think the, the second life thing. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, the the second life thing you're mentioning, I do feel <laughs> the. That you see that now with uh, things that are on like a smaller network that then go to oh, Netflix yeah. and then all of a sudden sure. it just like pops like um, that like happened with Shit's Creek Cobra that Kai. was like yeah you yeah. Cobra Kai it was like no one watched that who who had YouTube Premium and then all of a sudden it goes I, I to Netflix I wrote on a show for it, but that's the <laughs> oh I'm so sorry <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, we all loved YouTube Red yeah. YouTube Premium whatever it's called you <laughs> Chan. But yeah, that it was yeah, it was a very bad platform. Um, and did a very bad job. Does um, it not exist anymore? Well, it exists. Mm. It's pretty much just yeah. like premium YouTube uh, content creators now. Yeah. Um, I see. I they're see. just not doing like the the studio stuff. But, yeah, but, uh, which is good. They had really great stuff too. It's just I don't know, maybe. It, they, the thing I heard about that is that they would people would like viewers you'd see like something that costs money next to something that doesn't cost money and you're just going to click on the thing that doesn't cost money. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of reasons why it didn't make a lot of sense. Um, you know, we can go into it at, an, at a later date when we do a YouTube preview. <laughs> well, in terms of like, you, in terms of you thinking like it made had the cultural impact, made a hundred million dollars. It's that's an interesting thing because you know you're. It sounds like you're about seven, eight years younger than I am. And this, I don't even know how it missed me in theaters, right? But it missed me. Like it just, this this wasn't even on my radar until it became a movie that me and my friends watched over and over and over and over and over again when it was on Comedy Central or or HBO. So much so that only this and Election were the two movies where I just... Uh started texting my friends from high school who aren't movie kids, right? Mm-hmm. Like my friend my friends who 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 watched like maybe 10 movies in their lives. But all the lines in office space I hear in in their voice because we would quote these lines over and over and over lines that you wouldn't even think are funny out of context. Um like everything that the bobs say uh, oh, so good, so good. But also, <laughs> I forgot. I totally forgot that the O O O guy was from Office Space. Like, I I know that quote because that was like the biggest quote yeah. of the of the early two thousands. Was people just going like oh oh, and then <laughs> and then that's just some random one off guy who comes in two thirds of the way through I the know. movie, so does funny. one great line and bounces. All right, so I want to get into so why good. I love this movie so much. I love this well, movie so much for a million reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But one of the biggest reasons is: Have you guys ever had the misfortune? I don't think you have, Phil, of working in an office like this. Oh yeah, I worked at a collection agency. Oh I, I my god, them. that sounds oh. terrible. <laughs> uh, how about you, Zach? I haven't worked at something quite this soul sucking. I did. I. I. The closest was. Pretty early on, I'm like, I mean, this isn't even close to as bad, but I, there was a, um, the first TV show I worked on was called, was a reality show about eel fishing, mm-hmm. uh, called Eel of Fortune. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, did you work on a reality show within 30 Rock? Will Island and Eel of Fortune? It was like too stupid to be even a throwaway joke on 30 Rock. Uh, it got, can- 
it got canceled mid first season on Animal Planet, and um, oh they uh, my job was they would have they they would have uh, they'd shoot like I'm not exaggerating like. 16 hours a day of they wanted it to be like this you know like these one of these exciting fishing ice challenge boat shows but the eel fishing is just you stand on the side of a river with a net and you like essentially like sweep it and you don't talk to anyone because you're all spaced out and it's just like you're like sweeping like a broom on the side of a river and that's it and so my my job was for i'd watch just like hours and hours and hours of footage and just like mark down whenever someone speaks so that was a soul sucking television. <laughs> it really I, like I'd spend eight hours a day and I'd see like maybe like four lines. <laughs> yeah, I I had my my first job in Hollywood. This isn't what it wasn't what I was going to talk about. But was was also a PA on a reality show. Um, I worked on Intervention, which is still on the air, which is insane, right? Like seventeen years later, sixteen years later, this show that I was on season one for is still on the air. But I did the same thing. I logged footage. I they only gave me one of those headphones that came out of one ear. And I was uh, too lazy to actually go and get a better pair of headphones. So for months I just listened out of one ear and I wound up having hearing loss in that ear. So we're like my the, the off ear would hear things at a different volume and it would, oh my god it would uh it would cease. And I had, so I had to like, but that was, you know, that was one part. That was great. The other part. What is the seizing ear feeling? Awful. It's just like, "Eh." like, (laughs) um, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like your eardrum, it's like your eardrum is vibrating inside. Right. Um, you know, that scene in 127 hours when he cuts the, uh, cuts the nerve and he goes, "Eh, ah, that's a classic. "Eh." Yeah. Yeah. That's me, my ear. But the, oh, the other thing that I wanted to point out about <laughs> this movie that I love so much is in – and this is true for any office. In, growing up in, in elementary school or college, you're, you know, you're, you're generally faced with the choice of who do I want to be friends among these many hundreds of people uh, and who is most likely among these many hundreds of people. Uh, in an office, it's who in this office – doesn't seem like they're going to kill me or stalk me or like do like, but like just be bizarre and invite me to weird parties or like force me to like, you know, like, 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 I don't know, like, uh, like go to their improv shows or whatever it is, like whatever horrible (laughs) things you have to do. So, so Peter, Michael and Samir, don't make a lot of sense in any other context, but in the context of this office, those are the only three half normal guys. And I love yeah. that. And yep. then like the yep. fourth most normal guy is Drew who comes over and shows you his O face. Who's a nightmare to be around. Anybody who talks <laughs> like that is a nightmare to be around. And he's probably the third, the fourth most normal guy. And then like, there are other little things. Like I love how, like when they walk to the office, they walk over the grass. You never see that. But whenever I've worked in any kind of office place or office park, like we take shortcuts through grass, even though it's like, that's what the grownups should be doing. Like grownups yeah. walk on sidewalks, but if but you're, basically, <laughs> you're basically a child when you work in an office, you're basically like you're basically almost not to not to get too far, but you're basically almost imprisoned with this group of weirdos who do the same job as you, and anybody who's half half normal becomes your like 
you're like you're the man next to you in the foxhole. So I just as a, as a starting point, I think they get that in a way not even The Office gets. Right? I yes. don't even think the it office gets the tiny like minutia of office culture. So like just like even yeah. what's on the walls and the like tiny things that people do to show off their personalities. And I remember it's funny you were saying the thing about jail because I read the like Roger Ebert uh, review yes. of it, yep. and he was saying that like the it's like tr- like a lot of the shots are like trying to like feel like it's like jail cells almost and that you know uh lumberg is like the warden who's like you're like trying to sneak around and they they do it's it's so good it's really i mean it's it's to that point um there's a couple things that that you guys said that that i wanted to unpack a little the first is that kenny to your point on these type these types of working environments it's a strange group of people being brought together, generally speaking, which is that there aren't a lot of commonalities because no one's passionate about this type of work, obviously. Right. So what you have are people that are doing this job because they have to do this job to pay the bills, essentially. Um, you know, when I worked at this, it was <clears throat> the company that, that I worked at was called Total Credit Recovery, which is basically taking How did all this your money to you. <laughs> um, I didn't. So, just to be clear, this what company he started the company. <laughs> I wasn't actually calling people to to take their money. Thankfully, I was working in the telemarketing side that was working in in a different sort of faction of it. But every now and then, we would walk over to the room where the collectors were, and it. it I, I wish I could articulate for you the darkness that radiated from that room. Like it just felt like people that were just ruining people's lives like it's just it it was really really dark um did they seem to be enjoying it or were they like fuck i don't want to have to do this they felt like i mean first of all it was a room with no windows it was just like two giant rows of people that were just like plugged into a computer and just saying stuff like i'm sorry sir but we have to turn off your power or i'm sorry sir but if you don't like it's really dark shit um it's like it's a level of darkness that i Try not to think about, but um, it, it does speak to this sort of the the office component of just a bunch of drones that are kind of forced into a room to do a thing. But the other thing that I wanted to mention to piggyback on what, what you were saying, Zach, which is that Mike Judge was constantly taking art direction away. Like the art director was like putting stuff up. He's like, no, that would never be here. Like he was trying to strip this down to such a naked place that it makes the movie less cinematic but it's more accurate to what that lifestyle is like it's another reason why i think this movie just didn't do well in theaters which is that people are like why would like i want to go to a big screen movie to see fucking cubicles (laughs) like it's just it's it's a weird sort of dynamic. yeah (laughs) but um to to just give a little bit of context um they they, um, yeah go ahead sorry go ahead zach Oh, I was just saying, I feel like they did a good, even though it's so drab, I think he did such a good job of still making it look cinematic. Like, there's just so many, like, great shots of, like, cranes, like, moving from one cubicle to the other. And, like, very, like they make, like, the loading bar feel very intense, even though, obviously, it's a nothing <laughs> feeling. And, like, it's just, like, it's shot, like, I mean, you know, it's, like, such a does such a good job of, like, it like either goes like full wide this is the most boring thing in the universe or like a pretty dynamic cool like you know even just like the little dream sequences and the um you know all the close-ups and like all the montages that make it like still feel very cinematic 
there's a nice little shot to 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 that. I also point. say Milton. Sorry. Yeah, the Milton. Sh- there, when Milton's on the phone uh, and he's just complaining, and mm-hmm. then you go from Milton's desk over the corner. He's kind of catty corner yes. to Peter's desk. And you find out Peter's on the phone with him. There's almost always in 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 film or TV when you show cubicle life. It's horrible. It's just a. It looks horrible. <laughs> it's a horrible place to be. This does. This isn't that bad. And I think one of the main reasons is it doesn't feel like it's lit with fluorescence. Um. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So for whatever reason, like you still get this vibe of like this is a really horrible, soul sucking place to be, but it it still feels reasonably bright. Um. Mm-hmm. I think that helps to some extent. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's. I don't mean to suggest that that there isn't um, an eye behind the camera. Uh, I just think that because it's a because it's such a monochromatic world, right? Like there are things that pop when they go to Tchotchkes, and and there's definitely a lot of pops of color and flair and stuff like that to you know to, to accentuate the over the topness of that establishment. Um, you know, and there's and there is certain things that they do like with Milton, where you know y- you really do feel that kind of. Um, I don't want to say cartoonish, but like it's a little more heightened with him than it is with everybody else. It feels like sometimes, um, but yeah, it's 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 one of those movies that um, the style is no style, right? Like that's kind of the the point to some degree or another. Um, but yeah, I, I I think that Mike Judge has proven himself. I mean, Idiocracy and Extract, I think, are the he only has two other films, right? And, and obviously Beavis and Butthead do America, but th- those are his, I believe those are his four films. Um, he's shown himself to be, he's really nailed it. I mean, Silicon Valley does it as well, right? That just a very specific, um, you know, uh, cutting way of seeing corporate America. Um, I'm going to yeah. give a. I'm going to give a synopsis of the film for people who might not have seen it. Uh, corporate drone Peter Gibbons, played by Ron Livingston, hates his soul-killing job at software company Inatac. While undergoing hypnotherapy, Peter is left in a blissful state when his therapist dies in the middle of their session. He refuses to work overtime. Can I can I pause you there for a second? Sure. I feel like in talking about people talking to people about this movie, that is like the inciting incident of the movie. And a crazy piece of like, almost like fanciful, like the the hypnotist, like putting him in this yep, hypnotic yep, state yep, and yep. then dying. That's kind of this like crazy, like, um, I don't know, fanciful thing. And I feel like people don't remember that. Like in talking no, to people, agree. like I would mention that to them. They'd be like, oh, yeah, was it the hypnotist thing? But they remember the whole rest of the movie, specific quotes, yep. the scenes, like every all the fact stuff, every every character. But they'll be like. Was it is a hypnotist? I don't know because it's like such. A, it almost feels like a studio note, like the like. Okay, you need some reason why he's changing or something like that, rather and also, than. And it completely fades away. Like they they don't yes. really go back to it. They never really. At one point at the bar, he's like, "I guess it might be fading or something." Like like they throw away <laughs> something in there, but like it's sort of the 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 you know the inciting incident, and then it kind of just goes away. Back to the synopsis real quick. Uh, He refuses to work overtime, plays games at his desk, and unintentionally charms two consultants into putting him on a management fast track. When Peter's friends learn uh, they're about to be downsized, they hatch a revenge plot against the company inspired by Superman 3. Uh, The film was written and directed by Mike Judge. It opened on February 12th, 1999, in eighth place with $1.5 million behind Message in a Bottle, Payback, She's All That, and October Sky. 
There you go. Mm. Uh, however, uh, on home video, it would it would sell over six million copies on DVD, Blu-ray, and VHS sales. Comedy Central premiered Office Space on August fifth, two thousand and one. That airing drew one point four million viewers, and by two thousand and three, the channel had rebroadcast the film over thirty five times. Uh, the broadcasts helped develop the film's cult following. <laughs> it definitely feels like that was like. That's a DVD people own. Like, I don't know anyone in, like, comedy who doesn't own that as a DVD. I own they don't watch DVD. it anymore, but they, like, they just, I, you, I, you just, you see, you go to someone's house and you see that it's, like, leaning a little bit so you can see the <laughs> post-it guy. I also think something that I love, another thing that this film created was uh, the TGI Fridays made their waitstaff no longer wear flair because people <laughs> were constantly making fun of their flair. Oh, that's funny. That that, that maybe he made the the world a better place. (laughs) The secondary guy, the second waiter in TG in uh, Chachkis, is my favorite guy in the movie. The excited guy, but he's like he's excited, but he's like he's he's a brand of funny that I've never seen in a movie before. I totally know, like he has. He has this weird high status thing going on be, be, besides being one of the lowest status people I've ever seen. Like where there, you know, I think it's uh, who says Peter goes, I'm going to shoot the place up. And he goes, boom, 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 boom. Like who could <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or after Jennifer Addison throws her middle fingers up at Mike yeah. Judge, he sees her in the parking yeah. lot and he goes, ah, fuck you. Like <laughs> who are you to be making fun of anybody? Anyone. 37 pieces of flair. <laughs> but it's so funny. Like it's just. He's just so funny. Like every single character in this movie has a thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also, speaking that, of that guy, there's a great moment after uh, Peter thought? is. Um, I don't remember, but. When Peter goes to Chotkey's to ask out Joanna, and that waiter comes up to him, and he just like moves him aside, like, mm-hmm. like a chess piece, that he's just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's. it's- <laughs> Peter he does the same thing with Lumberg later, too. It's yeah. great. When Peter he's leaving the office. Such a hero in this movie. I remember as a kid, I was like at 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 that at like a child age. I was like, "That's what I'm going to be as a, when I grow up. I'm going to be a construction worker. I'm going to have fresh air, and I'm not going <laughs> to give a fuck." And then I was, yeah. And then like How's I just remember, that's not going. I I build things. Well, not I, get a lot of fresh air, but <laughs> I want to make another point about Peter because I love Peter. Yeah, 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 yeah. He might be my favorite character ever, and I am interested in hearing your thoughts, Phil, in particular about Ron Livingston's performance because my guess would be he's more burger to you than Peter Gibbons. So I wonder how that plays for you. But I, okay. Peter Peter Gibbons does a thing in this movie that I hate so much in any other film, and it works so well here. I hate the the trope where someone goes into a job interview and fucking, you know, flunks the job interview so hard on purpose. You know why I should work here? I shouldn't work here. I'm not for your your shit and 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 I think this company's, you know, totally backwards and if I were you, I would just blow the whole thing up and start from scratch and then like they go home, I blew the job interview and they get a call, we need someone like you with initiative. That's the worst. I hate that so much. You know, the whole like or the college interview, like who just writes, the, you know, this the urban legend about the person who just like there's a college interview. What's the what's the bravest thing you ever did? And someone just writes in crayon this and they get in. No, you don't go away. I don't want that kind of person in my life. OK, Peter does that. 
I completely buy it in this movie. I it, it, a lot of it is because of the performance from the two Bobs, um, who don't seem to be enamored with Lumberg at all. But uh, he really does sell the idea that uh, this company is fucked up. You see why this company is fucked up, and he really charms them. I I I really truly buy it. And if you don't buy that, if 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 either Ron Livingston or Mike Judge or John C uh, or John C McKinley or the other Bob, um, not important enough to have a name, uh, <laughs> fucks these <laughs> scenes up, this movie doesn't work. I, first of all, I want to I want to just quickly answer your earlier question about my feelings about Ron Livingston, who. I actually just, apropos of nothing, just recently rewatched Swingers um, the other day, which surprisingly holds up. That's a conversation for another day. But Livingston's really good in that movie. Um, a different podcast, yes. Uh, Ron Livingston is really good in that film. Um, and I like him as Burger. I love him in Fine, that film. I guess. Burger's kind of a shitty character on Sex and the City. But, um, I, yeah, but... He's very good in this movie. I think the thing about Ron Livingston, and it's perhaps why he's not a bigger star, is that he has an everyman quality about him that makes him a little bit forgettable, um, which works perfectly to this film because it's clear that, or at least Mike Judge said he was looking for a, um, oh my God, what's the guy's name from um, Midnight Run? Not De Niro, the other guy. You know what I'm talking oh, about? Charles Grodin? Groden, yeah. Charles he was Grodin. looking for a Charles Groden type to play this role. He wanted someone that felt like an everyman. Um, and apparently a lot of the casting, a lot of movie stars came in and they were there was just too much swagger to them. He wanted someone that felt like a real person. Um, I think he's very, very good in this movie. I think he's very funny in this movie. But I also understand why this didn't launch a movie career. Like, it's not a role that really does that. Intentionally so. I wanted to also just talk real quick about the critical uh, acclaim that this film got. It has mm. 80% of Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 93% from Un- audiences. Not enough. It should be much higher than that. I don't see what they could... Ha- it's perfect. I don't it see really what you, holds up. I don't up. see what there is not to like either. I don't... I mean, I have, I have some issues that we'll get into when we talk about the plot a little bit, because I do have some How issues. dare you? <laughs> I'm sorry. I gotta, I gotta be honest. Um, but I do want to read just very quickly a couple snippets of some reviews. Ebert gave it three out of four stars, said Office Space suggests that regular employment is a life sentence. Asked to describe his state of mind to his therapist, Peter says, since I started working every single day has been worse than the day before so that every day you see me is the worst day of my life <laughs> judge that's an animator that's such a good now. line oh. it's a great line uh judge an animator until now treats that, his character that, that is my favorite show. line sorry that's my favorite line of 1999 there is something really so 1999 i said i said this to you phil on text and i mean this like seriously Reality Bites is the perfect beginning of Gen X film. Uh, Office Space is the perfect end of Gen X film. Because Reality Bites in the early 90s, I think that's fair. There was a world of possibilities for this generation in 1990. They could do anything. They could be anything. They could explore anything. And by 1999, they were drones in a fucking office who had given up so fucking hard. And not the shit on Gen X because, you know, Phil is almost Gen X and I am almost Gen X, though we are proud millennials. 
I believe, Phil, you were barely a millennial, right? January 1980? Yes, Phil is, Phil is the, first, the first of the millennial Higgins. Um, as proud millennials, Gen Xers have done nothing. They did nothing. They squandered their they squandered everything that was given them by the boom of the 80s, by 30 years of, of relative prosperity, of like 20 years of like no war, of the Clinton era where everything went pretty well. And by the time 9-11 hit, they should have been well positioned to to deal with that in the, re- the recession, and they fucking failed. And like I said to Phil, outside of Gavin Newsom, which you pointed out, there's not a single prominent Gen X politician in this country like the the aoc is a millennial pete Buttigieg is a millennial like this fucking generation just disappeared in offices across the country and every day by the time they were 32 every day was worse than the last every day was worse than the last i mean i would i would i would argue that there are factors outside of uh you know a lack of ambition in the generation x that that i think might have there uh, is there's one big factor the 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 only worse generation than them is the baby boomers and the baby boomers held on to power in a way no generation previously had and kept generation x down Hmm. but (laughs) <laughs> that being said, they should have fought back and they shouldn't have ceded. They shouldn't have ceded the the uh, the tech revolution to, to the millennials, which they did. They I want to uh, I want to piggyback isn't, on this. Isn't, uh, Go ahead. Go ahead. Isn't Chuck Schumer Gen X? No, Chuck Schumer is the greatest generation. <laughs> Chuck Schumer is Chuck Schumer is generation, I think. But no, I think he was in the eighties. He was like fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> he was lines I, of coke at concerts. It was great. That's true. I want to read something very quickly from the Guardian that speaks to what you're talking about here, Kenny. Uh, maybe it was YTK anxiety. Maybe something was in the Hollywood water. Whatever the reason, ninety nine yielded a bumper crop of movies from angry ordinary men throwing off society shackles and finding something extraordinary in themselves. Fight Club and The Matrix purported to see past the blinders keeping everyone in line and revolted against the sinister forces of capitalism and parasitic brain vat robots, respectively, exerting their invisible control. The boomers. In America, the American the boomers. In American beauty, a henpecked husband gave himself a new lease on life by rejecting suburbia for a simpler existence of weightlifting, pot smoking, and skirt chasing. But the most revealing film of that time about the shifting influence of work and the evolving mores of masculinity has to be Office Space. Though he's defined by his lack of extraordinary qualities, Peter's as much of a chosen one as his contemporary Neo. He takes it upon himself to carry the mantle of his fellow men, left flabby and neutered by the creature comforts of mild prosperity. His crusade against the tyranny of 9 to 5 would refine its social competent to shed the hang-ups from manliness, and the economic stakes would rise considerably over the following decades. But Peter remains an everyman for this particular moment, an embodiment of the Gen X ideal, a genuine soul standing tall against selloutism, the dream of the 1990s i think there's something to Mm -hmm. i think that speaks to what you're talking about kenny which is that there's this like gen x was the slacker generation right it was the generation that for whatever reason prided itself on this lack of ambition to a certain degree i mean he says it in this film how many times does he say i just don't want to do anything yes so so kind of right like a hundred percent that's that is the branding of gen x the slacker generation but i do think that the notion of being a slacker for life is not realistic i think what they really were is hit is hit on in that 
Guardian article, which is the I will not sell out generation, right? I will not sell out. And that notion that was so prevalent when you and I were growing up or when all of us were growing up, the idea that like I liked the band before they were on the radio or I knew I'm down with, you know, so-and-so's early work or like, (laughs) you know, like this band is not good anymore or whatever it is, this artist is not good anymore or like you have to watch fucking evil dead don't go watch spider-man all that shit right it's all based on the notion that as soon as the mainstream gets it it's garbage and i think that is a direct a, a direct response to the way the baby boomers just took over every element of culture after uh, the greatest generation essentially like you seated control and like about seven mid 70s early 80s um and Generation X only had, uh, a, a only had resistance and de- defiantism and antagonism that, to go on. And when that kind of proved to be not enough, which it was just not enough, you can't just go on. I'm going to do the opposite of these people. They petered out, and they're left with almost nothing. I mean, granted, like I believe a Gen Xer created Google, but I think that's about the list of like big, relevant, massive societal societal things that this generation did what the millennials did and again this might not be good or bad this is just real life um what the millennials (laughs) did was accept was it was accept was accept that it's very hard to completely change society and perhaps it's better to work within society to create things which is why I think you have so many massively successful millennials and you also have this incredibly large underclass of people left behind because to some extent the millennials gave up the socialist dream. Now what's really interesting is that Gen Z is now taking a very serious stance which is like, oh no, 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 we're not going to be like you guys who just co-opted capitalism and turned it into something that like only works for you. We have to we have to completely change society because you know we stand no chance of w- with what's going on right now. So I do think that like mm. Gen X like did have this like this this beautiful dream that they gave up on really fucking quickly when it was time to eat. And instead of trying to figure out something new and exciting, they went and worked in fucking office parks changing code for two thousand. And that is like kind of sad. And I understand why Peter Gibbons, his character is like every day is the worst day of my life. Because I think that was fucking true. It's true when you're 35 years old mm. and you realize like everything I wanted to do in my life is not going to happen. So that's my big that's rant about this. That's interesting. I do think, I think you're absolutely right on it. It does feel like the ultimate Gen X movie because it has that. It has that feeling, but then it also has the feeling of like, and and Jennifer Aniston ends up being kind of the like, um, the person who the like oracle of this is you. You have to eat. You have to do a job, and when you don't, if your whole deal is to do nothing, you that doesn't that doesn't work. You can't have a family when you just want to do nothing. You can't grow old when you just want to do nothing. All right, we'll be back with the podcast in a couple of minutes. But first, a word from our sponsor. That's right, we got a sponsor. Folks, do you love movies? The good ones? Even the bad ones everyone told you not to like? It sounds like Super Yaki is the place for you. 
The team at Superyaki loves movies so much that they decided to dedicate every waking moment of their lives to bringing you top quality merchandise to showcase your love for them. From super soft t-shirts rightfully demanding a production of a third national treasure to comfy sweatshirts that reasonably serve as a call to arms for all those in support of making Judy Greer America's lead. They even have pins of some of your favorite directors like Sofia Coppola and Jordan Peele. Super Yaki joyously brings your tangible love letters to movies and filmmakers that you can wear with pride. Plus, the team at Super Yaki screen prints all their apparel using eco-friendly 100% water-based inks and ships with compostable poly mailers for an environmentally friendly alternative to online shopping. And as a special gift to you, listeners can save 10% on their order with the code SUPERFRIEND. All caps, no spaces. That's SUPERFRIEND at checkout. And if the spirit moves you, find them at superyaki.com. Let's watch more movies. That's superyaki, S-U-P-E-R-Y-A-K-I.com. Thanks for listening to that ad, guys. Now back to the show. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Do you feel like when people speak of sketches, they're looking down their nose? Like, a sketch is a fucking scene. Like, everyone needs to just relax and stop, like, thinking that a sketch (laughs) is somehow a a lower form of the medium, which is what I think some of these critics were throwing at office space. But I think you know what they're saying. I mean, I I think, like, even in, like, I'm pitching movies and shows now, and you always have scenes have games, characters has games. It just means you have a consistent thing that heightens. Like, it's, it's not a... It's a great tool for a movie. Not every scene and character has to have one. And, you know, I, I was talking about Milton now. He has this, like, perfect game yeah. that, like, starts small and realistic and then, you know, gets escalated and heightened. But it feels reasonable in the context because we've, you know, laid down all the steps. And all the characters kind of have games like that. And, um, like, the neighbor has a game of, like, he's always interrupting at the worst times and worst mm-hmm. times and worst times. And then finally... The, there's a dramatic twist to the game is just that when he, you know, when he needs him and he's feeling lonely, he doesn't want to come over. So it's like you have those, yeah. like, I, I, I don't know. I don't think sketch is a bad thing. Even, even like most drama movies and scenes follow some kind of sketch format. Like, it's just like things are bad in a specific way and they get worse in that specific way. Like, it's just what, like yeah, following it, a path. That's what a sketch is. What you're describing is um, character development. It's called and, writing. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, you know, and, and plot progression. And um, it's just, it's, it's, it's a very, very lazy criticism to throw it at someone. I, I mean, you know, like Beavis and Butt is essentially a sketch. There are things that are, that are, that are standalone sketches within Beavis and Butt. 
And mm-hmm. Mike Judge comes from a sketch background. It's very lazy to say mm-hmm. that someone who comes from that kind of background writes that kind of movie. I don't really see that in this movie. Um, in in a way, in it, it like how you see it in other movies, like it, like Judd Apatow movies have these standalone ideas or standalone scenes that don't service the plot the way these movie with the way the the scenes of this movie do. I I don't think. If you didn't know who was writing this movie, I don't think you'd even begin to make that to to, to call it "quote unquote" sketch. Uh, I might also right now be falling into the trap of looking down my nose at it, which I don't mean to do. I just it just seems like it seems almost irrelevant. It's just another way of writing. I think it's just a tool. I I think it's just because it's like there's still emotional stakes and good characters, and like there's like plot, and it's just you use sketch techniques, and like even in like there's like mini sketches in the like the way they destroyed the fax machine. Like it mm-hmm. just like finds a game of like mafia guys beating someone up and it heightens that thing until he's like being held back at the end. So good. And like, it's so just good. great. And even in the, like him taking apart the, just the damn, it feels good to be a gangster um, oh, montage right. that has kind of like uh, it has a game and it heightens. And it's just, yeah, I do think it has, it uses sketch structure, but because it's in the context of, of like you were saying that it's connected to it moves the plot and it moves like the characters and the emotions forward. Why, you know, it's it just an effective tool. I also come from a sketch background and work on a lot of sketches. No, no, no. I mean, I, I asked you the question specifically for that reason. I mean, I want to sort of, I want it to kind of come at it from that way, but I also feel like this is a good entry point for me to talk about perhaps my biggest criticism of the film, which is that I don't know that it completely sticks the landing. I think that the third act gets a little bit wobbly and it feels a little bit like he's unsure of how to end it, um, which is something that sometimes is <laughs> is a, a criticism of sketch comedy, which is that sometimes they don't know how to end a sketch. How um, dare you? <laughs> <laughs> but I think you I think you know what I'm getting at a little bit, which yeah. is that the film feels a little bit like it kind of backed itself into a corner with their uh their scam. And mm. uh they kind of just don't really know how to wiggle their way out of it. And I, and I would argue that I'm not entirely convinced that Peter, I think as a character, he is, um, he changes and he grows by the end of the film. I'm not entirely convinced that I felt like him being a, a construction worker was his dream. Um, it, 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 it felt a little bit like it just sort of happened a little bit. I didn't really feel like that was entirely motivated. Like I I guess it just sort of, it ends a little bit where it began, which is perhaps part of the point. It certainly feels that way with, um, with uh, uh, Michael Bolton. So I, I just, I'm just wondering whether or not you guys felt that, and I still love the film and I'm not, I'm not trying to denigrate it. And, and it's not as though it doesn't, that, that I don't think the film is still great. I just, even Mike Judge has said that he wishes he could have done a rewrite on the third act. Like, I think that there's, there's Mike something. Mike Judge is wrong. He's wrong. I He's love wrong. the ending. I think it, I think it sticks the landing. <laughs> absolutely. Because you, you have the payoff with Milton who burns the place down. And it's like the that company works. is yeah. going to win. The company is going to win. They figured out the scam They're Everyone's going to get what they want, but because they've been abusing this guy for so long, they lose. So that's a great payoff. The construction work thing comes a touch out of nowhere. However, <laughs> you'll remember in Act 1 that um, 
uh, Peter asks his neighbor about his work and mm-hmm. if he likes it and stuff. And he says, um, does anyone ever ask you if you're having a case of the Mondays? No. And he says, oh, you'd get beat up <laughs> oh, if no. you... If you said that and he's like, oh, yeah. So I think that, you know, that probably was added later as just like, oh, we need to tee up the ending a little bit. But it's like the I guess it's the exact opposite of the office work, or at least that's how they're pitching it. Although right at the very end, the last shot of at the construction scene they have like a boss in a different colored helmet coming over to them. So I think it might be teeing up that like, even yeah. in this like perfect non cubicle world, you still have the like shitty bosses who, like yeah. coming over to check on you, which is like a great little wink. And then Milton's on the beach at the very end. That's the last thing they imply that he stole the money. I believe that I think that's the implication. That yeah. yeah. Well, they, 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 it's also explicit that he ate the worm. <laughs> oh, oh all over all over his shirt <laughs> <laughs> which isn't a great payoff that's a great button for milton to have you know he finally got what he wants but then he can't get the right drink and then i'm <laughs> well, trying you're, to remember how it ends with jennifer aniston they end up together you're, she's you're, at a different job remember she's working at like yes, another tchotchkes which they also set up earlier because it's she was saying that she liked their uniforms better and it seems like a nicer mm-hmm. place and I don't know. I love the movie. I mean, okay, let me. I don't want to eat my words, but I do want to just retract a little bit and say that um, I'm not saying that these things don't work or that they're completely unmotivated. I guess the question is whether or not they're completely satisfying. And the and the answer is within what you just said, which is that I think that they are um, within the within the universe that Mike Judge has painted these are reasonable endings and I guess it just doesn't feel like a big ending, but why should I expect that from this film? I guess is what I'm getting at. Like, I think that this is the ending that this film deserves. There's all right. there's a reason you should expect it from the film. I, 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 I hear everything you guys are saying. I think I agree with every word of it. Phil, I, I actually like kind of in my bones agree with you, like watching it, like in terms of, I do feel a little underwhelmed by the ending and I decided I don't care. Um, <laughs> fair. That's fair. Like, I decided that this movie doesn't hinge on whether or not it, quote unquote, sticks the landing. And it's it's one of those, like, it's one of those bar, uneven bar dismounts where they do a little jump, a little jump. So it's not perfect. <laughs> but, like, she's still on, you know, she's, she's still on two feet. She still throws her hands back. <laughs> So I, it still works really well for me. The reason I do think it, it matters more than uh, most comedies is because there is a plot in this movie that that begs for some kind of closure this movie is also a heist movie now it's not it's not a heist movie like oceans 11 but there is a heist element to this movie that does require some kind of closing of that loop and it is a little bit unsatisfying the way it ends, even though completely agree, Zach, like they set it up brilliantly with Milton. And that's why it's not like a day of sex back in a way that bothers me, but it does feel like we didn't exactly win the movie the way you want your character to win the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just kind of, you know, he, he just kind of wins by the other guy losing, but that's so in, in the final analysis, the reason I say I, I don't care is because like the movie is so fucking funny and so fucking enjoyable 
that like it doesn't really matter to me that much how it ends as long as it ends in a reasonably satisfying way. And I do think it is thought provoking. I do think your point, Zach, about the about the boss coming over is interesting. It says something to me about Peter, right? It says to me like, okay, Daryl's the roommate. Or Daryl's the guy next to him. Is that his name? Dar- Wait, no, uh, no. Lawrence? Lawrence. Lawrence? Yeah. Lawrence has that same exact job and is happy. Peter has that job, and it's hinted that he is going to look at it the same way he looked at his job in an office in a cubicle. So maybe there's something wrong with Peter, right? <laughs> maybe maybe there's something about Peter that he yeah. can't be happy, and that's what he needs to work on. And we think this shit all the time. I'd be happy only if this happened. I'd be happy only sure. if that happened. And people who think like that almost are never fucking happy because you – I speak as a fucking depressed person. So you, 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 you look for the things that are not going well. So I think that, uh, I think that's the curse of being someone like Peter who's overqualified for most of the jobs he can get. I agree. I I agree with all that. It's perfect guys. I'm just, I want you guys, I want you guys to eat your worms right now because I think, I think it's a perfect landing because it, I mean, it's it just like each each character's end payoff says something about the culture, and you want a you don't want some big like Avengers type ending. This is about office culture and like the slight wins and how the cycle just keeps perpetuating and repeating itself. So there's not going to be some huge win. The like it's I, I totally so, agree with you on that. It's a I mean, very it's like, really good ending. It's a very and I'm it's not so saying good. It, I'm, I, and like, even like the friends, will, they're just getting caught back in the rat race in the same position. Jennifer Aniston's caught in the same thing. It it's about how even if you even trying to get out of the cycle, you're trapped back in it because that's what each person's arc is saying. Because the friends are trapped. Jennifer Aniston's maybe in a slightly better position, but now she's just trapped in a new cycle next door. He's now in construction work, so he thinks it's going to be good, but then you have the boss coming over, so he's trapped in the same cycle. It's just that you can never escape it because it it fits like what you were saying of the Gen X feeling of that you're just like you're just like always trapped right. in this. And I'll, eat gotta, I'll eat my worms. I'll eat my worms. Well, hold on. You're, I'm going to eat. I'm going to eat half of my worms. Worm. I'm going to eat some of my worms, okay? Which half is that of my worm. I'm going to eat half the worm. I, I, I think that everything you're saying is totally is totally right, Zach. You're still paper. eating worms, man. Yes. You may as well eat the whole worm. On paper, it sounds right. I'm not in totally convinced that it's executed in a way that is as satisfying as it could be. Um, and I and I wonder if some of it has to do with a little bit of the development of it, because some of Mike Judge, like Tom Rothman, who was running 20th at the time asked him to pull back on certain things. Um, one of the things that Jennifer Aniston was contingent on, apparently, was that um, uh, Jennifer Aniston was cast to accommodate Fox's desire to have a recognizable star in the film, although she was concerned that her part was so small, so they added the subplot about with her boss and the flair and all that sort of stuff. Which, which is was great. a result of that. Re- yeah, which is great. Um, however, uh, it, uh, also along with dialogue indicating that she had slept with Lumberg, um, so they they changed that like that it was actually going to be Lumberg, and mm-hmm. that they changed it so it wasn't really Lumberg. It was like another guy named Lumberg, Ron Lumberg, Ron Lumberg. that yeah. young guy, yeah. <laughs> which was my favorite when I was when I was younger. For whatever reason, that line always tickled me. The delivery of that line, Ron Lumberg, that young guy, I loved that. All right. Wait, what I will eat my, my full worm. I will eat my full worm. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Phil. Eat your, eat your worm. 
Well, but can I can I finish my half worm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're my my point was that it feels like there were things that were curtailed a little bit. I think, and some of the maybe the edges were rounded off the ending a little bit. It just felt like it, what everything you're saying, Zach, on paper, if executed fully, would have been great. But it feels like he just never fully commits to some of those ideas. So it's there's a little bit of just push and pull going right. on with that. That's what were the ideas that he I didn't commit to? I want to go to my worm. I want to go to my worm because I feel like I feel like Phil. I feel like Phil is bringing in uh, irrelevant evidence to to make his point. You're like, well, you're 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 extrapolating this thing you read, which is that that what, was Warner's who did this movie twentieth the twentieth that that twentieth that certain demands upon this movie and therefore the corners around it over. You're speaking as if it's objective truth. It's not objective truth. It's subjective. So whether or not the corners are rounded off the edge, it is. That's subjective. That's your subjectivity. So what I would, what I want to do, mm-hmm. is posit <laughs> a alternate reality. Okay. Alternate facts, if you will. Let's say yes, yes. I am entitled to my own facts. Okay. Let's say the other ending happens. Let's say they get away with it. Okay. Is that? More satisfying, and I'm not saying that there. And, and, like, let's 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 say one thing straight up: there are a lot of satisfying endings to every movie. There's not only one way to end a movie. Like anyone who has been in like a writer's room or written anything knows that there are a lot of different ways that an ending of a movie can go that work. So I'm not trying to say like better or worse, and it probably wouldn't serve all the same masters that that Zach is talking about. Mm-hmm. But is that a better ending for you, Phil? Like if they somehow get away with it? No, not necessarily. I'll, I'll say this as I was watching the film, which I did see back in 99, and I've probably seen it maybe once uh, another time since rewatching it yesterday. Um, I did find myself going like, huh, how does this movie end? Like I couldn't remember how it ended. Um, so I was, I was genuinely sort of like, do they get away with it? Like, I can't remember if they get away with it. I, I remembered Milton on the beach. Like there were things I remembered, but I didn't remember, uh, uh, his buddies going back, basically back into the, into the office space. Um, I didn't remember Jennifer Aniston getting her job. Uh, and I didn't remember the construction stuff. Um, and, and, and as it was sort of playing out, I just found myself just being a little bit let down because of how bold the movie felt up until that point. But to Zach's point, and I and I think to your point as well, Kenny, that's the point. Like I, I think that that's that's what he's going for. The question that kind of kicks around in my head is, and and Mike Judge has not unpacked this as to like what it means when he says, "I wish I could do a third act rewrite of the film." Like, what does that mean? What changes would he have done to the film? Does he wh- what does he feel didn't work or does work? Um, I think it's a fine ending to your point, Kenny. I think that he sticks the landing and then he does a bit of a stutter step at the end, but that's fine. I guess I just, I I wish that, I I guess I just wish that it felt a little bit more, quite frankly, satisfying. I I, I don't know how to, how to say it any other way. I feel like the point is that it's not satisfying because it's like, it's like the Gen X thing of like, you're never going to have that perfect life where you can just do nothing. You're trapped in this rat race cycle that, you at in some way or form you have to to give into the system like you can make little changes around the edges you can go work at intertrope instead of inatech you can wear a different uh outfit as at your waiter job than you had at the last one you can have a boss who's outside rather than a boss inside but it's these like um 
it's these like little changes that we can make, but we're still trapped in the system. It's brilliant. It's so good. I, I, I really want to just be very clear here, and it'll be clear by my by my my rating at the end. I really <laughs> love this film. I'm just saying that I think that it's not a perfect movie for me, mm. um, and and I think that I think it is a tremendous workplace satire. I think it is, it, it's one of the best. And I think it's also one of the best Gen X movies. And for all the reasons that we've been talking about. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess I just, I, I wish that, um, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I, I wish that I had the words to explain how I felt at the end of the film when it just feels a little bit like the movie kind of ends with a little bit of a shrug. It doesn't, it doesn't fully really sort of say what I think it wants to say. I don't know. I want to, I want to move on. Uh, Cause we have, we've, we've talked about it and we'll talk about it again. when we get to the end, <laughs> but there are two other elements that um, when Zach said I was concerned or you were concerned about how the movie would age, the two things that I was most concerned about mm-hmm. in this day and age that I think we have to discuss one is Milton, like period, end of story. And two is the soundtrack. Um, I'll take the second part first. The soundtrack is revolutionary. The use of gangster rap music in that context right now feels like appropriation. But at the time, it was the first time that gangster rap music had ever been used in a movie to, sig- to, to signify anything other than gang violence. And what it did was universalize that kind of music, which had already been universalized. Universalized. The Michael Bolton character rapping along to that song was not was such a great joke because we all recognized that guy. And a lot of us, a lot of us were that guy, right? Most people we know could rap along to a lot of gangster rap music for the 90s. Right. And to, 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 I also, I agree with you 100%. And I just want to say that the amount of pushback he got internally about the soundtrack. I mean, Tom Rothman literally was like, we're going to do one more test screening. And if people don't like this music, we're pulling this fucking music. The reason, wow. but it's, but it's but, so good, though. It, it like makes it's, it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. perfect. Yeah. It does make the movie. Yeah. And it's interesting yeah. to me because it, because it ties oppression in all forms together and i think anybody with half a brain understands that the experience of black americans and the experience of drones working in office couldn't be more different but the experience of going to someone and having somebody somebody's whims and feeling like you should be on the weekend and and temperature their coffee determine your day and week Mm -hmm. does feel like what am i going to do to get out from under this motherfucker's thumb so i love that now what it seems to me is Tom Rothman has nothing to do with this conversation. It seems to me that 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 the the concern was purely racist, was purely on some like, uh, don't put this kind of movie with these bad words, scary imagery into our nice white Gen X movie. Sure. The concern today is from a different point of view, which is like, that's not your music, right? You can't use that to score your movie that has nothing to do with this. But I think that it was revolutionary in a different way. And if you make art for the masses, which is what Aristotle and Electra and all these MCA and all these companies do, 
it's going to go out wide and it's going to mean different things to different people. And I think most artists feel that way. So I absolutely love that. Now there's another moment in this movie that I think is fucking brilliant and, and excuses any appropriation because it speaks to it, which is Michael Bolton in the first fucking five minutes of the movie rapping along, got my pistol point cocked, right? In the first five minutes of the movie and a black person is on the median selling and something he turns, and he turns it down and he turns tur- and he turns no he turns it you know he 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 locks the door he, oh, he yeah. locks the door he's afraid of the guy and uh as someone i work with said the problem with white america is that we love black culture but we hate black people and michael bolton shows that in one fucking move 21 years before people really you know in 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 mass were were aware of this idea Mm-hmm. So I think it does a it does a really clever thing of soundtracking these guys' lives to music made by people that they don't even interact with throughout this movie, except for Orlando Jones, who they basically think is a crackhead so, and someone who's capable of of laundering right. money. So and the lawyer, but uh, it's it. I think it's a really interesting part. We we'll talk about Milton later, but what do you guys think of the music? I want I I agree with everything you're saying. I, I think that part of what you're tapping into is that the film, um, the the boldness of it is in the groundedness of it and in the sort of the, the stripped awayness of it. You know, um, in a lot of the stuff I was reading, Mike Judge was saying that a lot of, you know, industry people were saying that the movie should take place in Wall Street or it should have like a Brazil kind of quality to it, like the movie, the Terry Gilliam film. Like everyone wanted him to create this sort of larger than life God, situation. Um, to talk about worker bees and being a drone and being all that sort of stuff. Um, but to strip all of that away and to make a movie that's so, quite frankly, naked in its intentions uh, was, was revolutionary. I mean, that, that's, and again, part of the reason why it's hard to market. It didn't do well in the theaters. Like, it's a movie that does well on your TV screen. It's a movie that does better when you're sitting at home or whatever the case might be. I think that it, uh, that there is, to, to tap into what you're saying, Kenny, there's an element of shame in this world. You know what I mean? In being a part of this drone world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Michael Bolton obviously has, has an additional shame in terms of how the music is used and in terms of that sort of appropriation. And um, yeah, all of that, I mean, all of that commentary, I mean, Mike judge is really fucking good at commentary. He's really good at pointing yes. the lens at us and saying like, see what you really are. Well, I think that's what makes it so good is what what you're saying is that how small the world is and how it feels so relatable. I think like I when I was a kid watching this, I was like, oh, that's just I didn't know what I'd never worked in an office. So I just go, oh, anyone who's works in an office, that's their life. I'd never seen a cubicle before because I, you know, I just I'd only been in school or and whatnot. And so like I, I just as a kid, I was like, OK, if you're not like the a doctor <laughs> or like a astronaut that's what your life is you're a office worker who like you can't quite describe what you do and like you're just doing something on computers and so i think by having it be so small it makes it so much better it's like that's why the a show like the office works it's because it's a paper company in a suburb if it was like some exciting silly company like a, a, like a wolf of wall street like type thing it's not going to work because it doesn't feel relatable and small and i think that's what a lot of like the best comedies do is that that smallness grounds it and that's it just makes so it brilliant. so that like yeah that, absolutely that's why this and the office are brilliant I, it, because very rarely it happens almost not at all in office space and very little in the office is like the paper the joke 
And paper's yep. funny. Like it's funny that that's what they sell, <laughs> but that's it. That's like there's not much going on there, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's it, it it's not funny at all to me that they work at fucking Inatech. Like that place sucks. But it that really sucks. the thing that really like hits me watching this movie is this is America. This is the, the, for, for most people in America. This is what your job looks like. I'm not, I'm not saying like. You know, there's that. I think it's the was it the Chris Rock thing about career versus job, um, where you know Chris Rock has a career because he's a comedian and he kind of gets to like you know be a little entrepreneurial and make his own thing. And someone working at McDonald's has a job. You go in every day. You clack. This is somewhere in the middle, and that's where I think most people live. Somewhere in the middle, where like yeah. yes, you can maybe work up the corporate ladder, and yes, maybe you can have some autonomy, and yes, you can have as many as four people under you. But for the most part, like you are going into work, you are looking at your watch at nine fifteen, yeah. you are spacing out for an hour. I, it, it, and as before, I talked about intervention. Like I worked two inter two in. My dad is a businessman, and I worked two internships in New York City. One at a real estate company, and one at a bank, like a private bank. And it was hell. Like it's a it's a hellish experience, basically being a filer at like a big company. You know, sit like Milton says, well, she, you know, he's talking about the woman who's allowed to listen to her headphones while she files away shit. Like I did that. I sat in a file cabinet for a, for a summer and filed away fucking index cards and like went to lunch with like the one 23 year old who like, you know, listened to Howard Stern. It was awful. I, I did a, uh, I had to work a couple months uh, at a warehouse for dollar stores. Um, and I remember I just had to, I literally just looked at spreadsheets all day to make sure that the various cases were correct, oh, the places that had dude. to go. And then one day so I had to, no it. joke, just move rocks, like bags of rocks that would go in aquariums. And I was just like, this is hell. Like, this is a hellish <laughs> situation. And I, I understand that there are people that, that, you know, that have to do it to pay the bills, but my God, it, it's, it's pretty brutal. Um, so I want to just uh, change topics real quick here, Kenny, and talk about one of your favorite subjects, which is Jennifer Aniston. I love Jennifer um, Aniston. You love Jennifer Aniston. Yes. Uh, understandably, she's, she's great. Uh, she's really good in this film. She worked for two weeks, apparently. She shot all her scenes in two weeks and was done. Um, you know, it was something that obviously was shot on a on a hiatus from from friends and what have you. Um, I really wish, and Kenny, we've talked about this a little bit in previous episodes. We've talked about the Friends cast and how they were all kind of unfortunately put in boxes and could only work on certain films on hiatus and this, that, and whatever. Um, in terms of what America expected the cast of Friends to be doing, I guess they were just supposed to be Julia Roberts or I don't know. Um, Jennifer Aniston is great in this film. She's great in The Good Girl, but then she does a whole bunch of pretty generic rom-coms and what have you that don't, that she can be the lead in um, as opposed to perhaps being lead uh, in more substantive she, movies. She's in so she's really many good in this movies film because I think girlfriend. she shows. She's in so many girls where she's the girlfriend. In yeah. so many movies where she's the girlfriend, the female lead. I mean, occasionally, you know, kind of rises up to the level where, where it's a co-lead like in The Breakup. But for the, for the most part, you know, it's a, it's a long came Polly where she's, fucking the, the third character right i she's the titular character but like ultimately like she is just you know manic pixie dream girl so yes um she's under you have you have your it's so very good i really like her she actually had my favorite my biggest laugh in the movie which is uh uh 
he she's t- complaining about flair and sh- he says the nazis had pieces of flair that they made the jews wear <laughs> and what? she has just a what? what that is so good it's like just the most perfect what I know, that like so that kills good. me every t- i mean she's so funny i really she's, she does I something funny. in this movie one of my favorite moments in the movie is a, a wordlessness moment which is when he turns to her. She says, so what are you guys up to? He's like, oh, I really can't tell you. Uh, I can't tell you what the scheme is. And she just looks at him. She looks at him for like, you know, a good 10, 15 seconds. And then it cuts to him telling her. Yeah, what the in the car, is. it's great. Yeah, because yeah, what really she good. says with that look is, you're going to tell me. Like, there's, it's, not, it's not an if, it's, it's yeah. when. Uh, it's great. So let me pause. Has she done like a super dramatic role? She was in The Good Girl, which was a really good movie yeah. that she's very good in, um, which is a dramatic role. It's a, a small movie that um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's in and Zoe Deschanel. And, oh, I guess and, The Morning Show. She's. I was going to say, she's in The Morning Show now, and that's yeah. a, a drama. But I, I think, yeah. you know, what's funny about Jennifer Aniston, uh, first of all, I think they have great chemistry. I love them too. They have great chemistry. Secondly, uh, Rachel is kind of her Peter Gibbons in that <laughs> – that she has, you know, 200 episodes of this character and she does it so perfectly, but that's not really a character that, that travels that well. And I think you've seen that because, you know, she's never really found a lane in features or even like, I think the morning show is not a very good show, even though I know she's a very good actress, but like, they've just never really been able to find and, and like bottle that Rachel thing anywhere else. Just like, like, they have never been able to like find and bottle this Peter Gibbons thing because it is so this Ron Livingston Peter Gibbons thing because it's so ineffable, right? Like there's just something yeah, yeah. about it that like I couldn't even begin to like explain to write. If you write a Ron Livingston character in a movie on on uh, on paper, I think people are going to be like, "This guy, there's nothing here." And you're going to be like, wait, yeah. wait until Ron Livingston plays him. Then you're going to see exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> but, but for the most part, I yeah. think people just yeah. be like, no, this is just your average boring white guy. But, and I think there's like, I, I think there's some of that with, with uh, Jennifer Aniston too, who yeah. like found these incredible layers in Rachel, who in almost anybody else's hands is like an average boring white girl. But she's yep. so fucking funny in that show. The only other person that apparently was in strong consideration for the role was Kate Hudson, who I think might have been interesting in it, but I'm not sure is totally right. Good. Yeah. Um, I love the fact that they, um, the studio for the marketing of this movie, I can't believe they did this. The studio had a man live inside a plexiglass cube above Times Square for five days. <laughs> <Come> on. <laughs> Wait, say that again? And that didn't work? The 20th studio... Paid a man to live in a plexiglass cube above Times Square for five days. As a, and then to just be like, this is a cubicle type thing? Correct. Just to really hammer home the cubicle idea. <laughs> but what? the best part is that apparently Livingston, who would do press events and would visit the guy in the cube, found that, that reporters didn't want to talk to him. They wanted to talk to the guy in the cube. I want to do a movie about the man in the cube. <laughs> That's a great name for it, too. The man, man in the, the, I, the I, cube. Could you imagine being the man in the cube, living there for five days, having this movie open and make $1.2 million? <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. It's great. Uh, I love it so much. 
Cube. That's what the movie Cube is about, I think. <laughs> that is what it's about. Yeah, I think it is. Someone got to it first. Um, so let's talk about the plot. Um, you know, we've we've hit a bunch of the a bunch of it, so there's really only a couple of things that I want to talk about, but I do think that this film opens perfectly. They're all stuck in traffic. I love the the Peter moments of him trying to, as we all do, thinking mm-hmm. that certain lanes are going to move faster than others. And I never do that. I don't know. Where basically, nothing about. happens. Um, obviously, that we've talked. Yeah, great. Okay. Uh, we talked about the Michael Bolton singing the rap stuff, which is great. I love Peter getting shocked by the the doorknob every day. Ah, so good. Yeah, it's just. It's so good. It's it's like the perfect metaphor. Um, it's also just I so good. It's one of the first the things. Way he... they, the way they shoot it, it's set up like he's like he's just like dreading going into the office, but then he's just dreading getting shocked. It's just so I hate getting shocked. Door. Getting shocked is the worst. Uh, so yeah, I know. I'm just like I, I I just love this one. I'm so glad that this was still available on your guys' 1999. Of course, of course. <laughs> Um, I love that one of the first things he does in that montage is to fucking unscrew the doorknob and, and take it off the fucking so door. Good. He ta- taking that electric screwdriver off the workman's belt is so cool. So he did yeah. so many cool things in this movie. It's yeah. he must be such a cool guy in real life. Like he has to be. Like you can't teach this shit. Yeah. I agree. And also, I think the one the thing I remember so vividly, in which they probably should have used as the poster image, is pushing the cubicle front. Yes. Over. yes. I just like I feel, maybe they didn't want to spoil what was coming, but it was just like, <laughs> like you know, oh. your your first half of Act Two is like always like you know it's the like premise of the movie, like the like fun and games of it all, and then it's that's the most iconic thing of just pushing that thing and just having it open. I just feel like that would have been such an iconic poster. It's too. also just to your point, it's so satisfying. Mm. There's something so yeah. satisfying about just having it fucking fall and him just Beautiful. getting to see outside. It's just great. Yeah. You don't um, even realize there's a window there the whole time. And then, yeah. Um, I love the the receptionist or the woman who's next yeah. to him. It, who's just saying the same thing over that squeaky and over. voice, yeah. Oh, my. I, I mean, when, when it happened the first time, I, I just, it would drive me absolutely insane. But. Yeah. Um, Gary Cole playing Bill oh. Lumberg. Oh, I mean, I- iconic an iconic so performance. Good. Iconic. Truly. I, I mean, I feel like in terms of like lasting, um, impact, just the fact that that's like, it's a meme now that like, that is almost <laughs> the most quoted thing of the, like, that would be great. And like, <laughs> I, I almost always, when I, when I see someone for the first time in a, in a day or whatever, I almost go is say the person's name. Hey, Phil, what's happening? Like, I, I, I think it is so perfect and funny and his outfit and his, the different yeah. color fucking, oh. the different color collars, sleeves collars, and collars and cufflinks, yeah. his hair. Suspenders. I still glasses. The one thing I didn't notice ever because I haven't watched this as an elder man, he's only 40 fucking one in this movie. <laughs> What? I mean, what is that shit? But it's 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 so perfect. It's so perfect. And the second yeah. boss comes over about the TPS reports, and I'm gonna make sure oh. you get. I'm gonna make sure you get yeah. that. Like the, yeah. the I'll make sure you get that memo. It's like, the, but I got yeah. it. The perfect yeah. amount of passive aggressiveness and authority. It's like Gary Cole is such a fucking good comedic actor he's a genius yeah, it's, it's 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 really amazing it's it's it also 
you know, when you get the gut punch at the barbecue where he finds her that Joanna or he thinks that Joanna had sex with him. Hell, Lumber. It's also. <laughs> <laughs> it's that guy. It's the O-Face guy. Yeah. It's um, guy. Of He's course, like it's the O-Face guy. Seven. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was looking up that guy I that actor has like not done much since but he no. could not have been more perfect for that. <laughs> He's fantastic. Perfect and name, true. perfect hair. But it's also like you have to be repulsed by the notion of someone having sex with him as well, but he also feels like a real person. Like it's a real balancing act to keep that all keep those those plates spinning. It also leads to one of my favorite jokes uh when uh Michael Bolton says their kids would have hooves. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I won't, I won't, I won't, all right. I'm yeah. going to say something. Okay. <laughs> as as I do on this podcast from time to time. Um. Okay. So initially it was supposed to be her fucking the real Bill Lumberg, right? Correct. And they changed it to Rodney Lumberg, that young guy. That young guy. Um. That's the cool an, guy. You moved to Atlanta. The cool. Yeah. That young guy. Cool guy. Yeah. Before I moved to Atlanta. <laughs> that's an interesting decision to me. Then and now, and I'm going to bring up something. Uh, that no one has seen except me, but it's a really, really great reality TV show moment. In the show called Average Joe. Do you guys remember Average Joe, the reality show? I was like uh, 15 years ago-ish. Yeah, 15 years ago. That's right. No. It was around like early American Idol times. It was a, <laughs> yeah, right around then, but it was really a, it was a spin on The Bachelor. And the spin on The Bachelor, it's a very cruel, horrible show. That didn't present itself that way. But the spin on The Bachelor is uh, a bachelorette, okay. beautiful bachelorette, goes on a show and all the guys are average. Mm-hmm. And like average looking, average jobs, oh just average. Just oh like, 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 like fives, right? Fives and below. And this poor girl yeah. goes on and she's like, this isn't what I signed up for. But now she's like, she's publicly shamed. And I'm looking at the the poster images are so good. It's an amazing television <laughs> show. So this girl is now publicly shamed that she has to like she has to go through with it or else she's superficial. So then what this show does halfway through is bring in five studs to go against the average Joe. <laughs> So halfway through, they bring in these five studs, like these, like these, like gym class heroes, and they literally the first thing they do is play dodgeball against these nerds and fuck them up, oh right? My God. So the girl, this show sounds awful. I watched three seasons. So the inevitably the girl <laughs> inevitably the girl chooses uh, one of the one of the hunks. All right, this sure. is this is actually season two. I'm talking about the girl chooses one of, of the course. hunks, right? Because in season two, for some reason, they bring in like 12 hunks and it's over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but like they're hunks, but they're not like bad guys. They're just mm-hmm. guys who happen to be beautiful. Sure. So at the end of it, they go on a honeymoon. And during the honeymoon, it comes out that this girl's ex-boyfriend is Fabio. And he <laughs> dumps her on the spot. And he does this <laughs> direct-to-camera interview <laughs> where he's like... Any guy in my position would have done the same thing. And I remember thinking it like this came out around 99. We would probably do this on the show. This is like 2003, something like that. And I remember thinking like, yeah, you can't date Fabio's ex-girlfriend. That says a lot about her. Okay. Long way of saying. It is super fucked up to judge a girl based on her exes. Super fucked up. And the... Mm -hmm. 
And I don't think you do that today. And her point stands whether it's Bill Lumberg or Ron Lumberg, which is like, it doesn't matter who I fuck. Yeah. So it's a real interesting decision that like they did that and they hung their, they kind of, you know, hung a lot of that movie on that, on that move. Like that mm-hmm. is their big fight that, you know, that, that, that breaks them point. up for a while. Yeah. Right. It's a big, it's a, it's a big major point. And it's an, I, I don't think it's as trivial as it would seem now. I also obviously don't think it's as major as it seemed back then. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of this weird gray area that mm-hmm. we don't talk about because mm-hmm. it's not like it's irrelevant who you used to date. It's not like it's irrelevant yeah. that if you found Bill Lumberg or Fabio or Jeffrey Dahmer attractive, like it does say something about you, right? Jeffrey Dahmer might be tough. It but says I something you. about you. If you if you were if you were if you used to date, I mean, who's the handsome? If you used to date Ted Bundy, I don't know if I want to date you. There's something going on there that I don't know if I want in my life. It's true. So it's, it's like if you found out someone dated like a Scaramucci or something, or like some like random like <laughs> yeah, yeah, Trump yeah, administrator. Yeah. Would you I used to date? Uh, like, would you guys? I mean, would, would you would you have second thoughts about dating Kimberly Goldfoil right now? Yes. Well, she's in on her own account very evil bad person. She used to be married, <laughs> she used to, be married to Gavin Newsom, which is like the biggest like mind yeah, that's of all the, that's of the all things. Thing um, well, right. That's why I think actually the the uh, her dating the re, the original version with her having dated uh, William Lumberg <laughs> is interesting <laughs> because even yeah, though by having it be the young Ron guy it makes her more relatable you like her more it makes their relationship smoother to come back to but dating Bill Lumberg it's saying. Well, you really shouldn't judge someone by their dating history. And it yeah. also says even someone as disgusting as Bill Lumberg have an appeal because of their power, their wealth. Maybe he's just a handsome guy because he does, look, you know, he's got the rings and yeah. he, the Porsche. And, you know, you can imagine someone being attracted to that. It's so a- it does say, I think from a satirical Mike Judge perspective, it does say more about the human experience that even someone as wonderful as Joanna would have dated a Bill Lumberg. It's a better uh, it's a better move. I, I I think it is a better move. Satirically, but I think for the movie's sake as a viewer, I, I, it feels better for it to be a different Lumberg. It does. It, it, it's it's the just one place this. where it goes too easy, Sorry, I think. Ahead. It's the one place where they go a little too easy on on our characters and they let them off. That's an edge. That's yeah. an edge that we. I also think it, it. 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 It's also. I agree with everything you guys are saying. I also think that by buying it back a little bit, it takes away some of the power of her stance that she has in the argument with him, right? Like she. It's a great scene where she stands up for herself and says, "Like fuck you, dude. Like whatever. I've had sex with people. You've had sex with people. Like that's just that's human nature." Um, and to then round the edges off it a little bit and be like, oh, don't worry. It was the young Ron guy who moved to Atlanta. It just it doesn't have the same power. Oh, yeah, it does. She's from her point of view. It's the same thing. It's 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 you're judging me based on someone I used to sleep with in her. She's like, but it's letting the audience off the hook a little bit. It's letting it's letting Peter off the hook that well, Peter yeah. doesn't have to make that big decision. And it yes. is substantiating this idea in the, in, in the audience's mind. That I am clearly on the fence about that you can judge or not judge a woman based on who she and same with men, by the way, which I think happens all the time, too, where if you used to date a certain person, I think you I think people do judge you based on that, which like I'm again, this is not this is not cut and dried to me. 
You know, sure. that, that this is that this is not something that should come into, you know, that, that this is not something that should be part of the discussion when you're when you are, you know, picking a mate. But um, on, on to, to move on to uh, one of the other casting that I think is great is John McGinley, who plays the uh, one of the Bobs. Mm-hmm. He's on like Scrubs. He's been in every Oliver Stone movie ever made. Yeah, <clears throat> he's great. Both so, Bobs yeah, I, are amazing. He's fantastic. But also, the two of them next to each other is very satisfying. Just they, they yes, like yeah. casted them to like just the pairing of them is a very funny look, and also they just like hold. He holds his face especially in such funny ways of the like, kind of. I know this isn't interesting <laughs> if you're listening to this, oh but God. like if you just like it's right. just like while he's listening, he'll it's like he'll be like or like. <laughs> I, I know. I just, like, it's it's so, great. Fish. It's cartoonish, but it works. What's great it's about also these bobs the, is yes, what's great about these bobs uh, among a million things. One, both their name is Bob. Two, they <laughs> they they're they're on the exact same page. They play off yep. each other so well, which I yep. love. And another line that like is constantly running through my head is, "So, what would you say you do here?" Which I think about all the time when I am in a sen- yeah. it, where, where I'm in a, a situation where someone is supposed to be doing a job and they don't. Oh. So what would you say it is you do here? They also have one of my other favorite moments. This is like such a good comedy moment. This is the kind of, kind of comedy moment I'd live for, where they're where you cut back to them in the office. I think they're talking to. Um, I I can't remember if they're talking to Peter or if they're talking to Lumberg, but. They're running through the people where they're going to let go. They're going to make, all right, so these three guys are going to fire. Then there's Tom Smikowski. He's useless. Gone. I just, it's, <laughs> and Tom is like, you, and, you have, and Tom is the one who runs the guys down in the, in the parking lot. He's like, yes. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired. So you have this like worry for him. Then it's just like, he's useless. It's useless. so yeah. good. Everything it's in that scene as well perfect. when um, they start to rave about Peter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah. Lombard is like, I'm, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. And they are like hurt, like yeah. like emotionally yeah. feel like they've yeah, been yeah. like. It's they did a great thing with like. Let me I'll, let me take this one. <laughs> it's so good. It's um, also so. I will say, harkening back to something we were talking about, I guess like two hours ago, <laughs> but that that all the Bob stuff is structured very sketch like. Like yes, it's yes. like very much like consultant. Like you could chop those out and have it and and totally get what's happening is like consultant consultants pee in a pod, like evaluating a company. You have the overly nervous guy who snaps, you have the the guy whose name that they think is funny, you have you Samir, know the, Naga, uh, Naga, not gonna work here anymore. Not gonna work here anymore. Yeah. yeah. I, so I also like, think that to, to yeah. your point, Zach, I'm almost they, always they, against making fun of people's names. That's the exception of the rule. It just has to be a perfect joke. That's all. I think also <laughs> I, it was it was so much of coming from those characters' perspective, yeah, yeah. not from the movie's perspective, which yeah. is like those two, you know, white consultant guys won't know how to pronounce that name. They're they gonna they don't they don't have any humanity for you know Samir and and the last thing they want to do is acknowledge that Samir is a person. Then it starts to hurt. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And also, it even has this perfect sketch payoff. All of this, the two of them of, is that um, they turn on Lumberg. Is that they say how many when he's oh, fighting back against? He says how many? How so? How much time do you say you spend a week on these TPS reports? It's just such a perfect payoff. It is. I love it. <laughs> movies that movies where, where also, movies that have um like like kind of these like authority figures come in above the authority figures you hate to be on your side are so 
satisfying. There is nothing fucking better than. And you know what's like the worst? Have you guys seen Die Hard Two recently? Yeah. No. Oh, they had the guy come in oh. from, the, from the military. <laughs> Who's there? They had this guy come in from the military. Who's there to, to foil the plot? Dennis France. The whole movie is like the thorn in John John McClane's side. And this guy from the military comes in, and like he's a hard ass, and you think he's going to be a problem. And very quickly, he's like, you know, McClane, you're an asshole, but you're my kind of asshole. And you're like, all right, let's go. We got the military now. And that guy turns out to be a turncoat too, but which is just like the worst. <laughs> but yeah. Um, what I was going to say is that when they introduce McGinley's character, it almost feels like Alec Baldwin's introduction in Glengarry Glen Ross. Like that this is the guy who's going to like basically fuck you all. Yeah. You know, screw you all over. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's the comedic version. It's of that. Wonderful. Um, <clears throat> also in this scene uh, to tee up whatever you have to say about Milton, Kenny, uh, they realize that Milton has been fired years ago, but uh, in a glitch okay. of payroll, he continues to get paid. So they're just going to fix that glitch and it'll quote unquote work itself out. Another great line. So we just went ahead and fixed the glitch. <laughs> it's so good. Everything, yeah. everything John C. McGinley says in this movie is so good. I mean, we're not even it's talking so about the Bolton stuff, which is amazing. Yeah. I which celebrate his entire That's catalog. incredible. Uh, mm-hmm. and I mean, then, all of them, man. They're oh, all great. And, and I was going to say, and speaking to the point, speaking to the game stuff, like when Michael Bolton initially says, uh, why should I change my name? He's the one who sucks. And then in that moment, he says, call me Mike. It's too much. It's just like, it's too much. <laughs> like, it's just, like, like we, we, we have a dearth of comedies this year, Phil. I think like yeah. the comedies yeah. this year outside of election are basically trash city. I don't know that been, that's true, but there have been some good you mean, ones. You mean 2020 or 1999? 1999. There have been I mean, some Galaxy good... Quest is the perfect comedy. We haven't done it yet. We, we haven't done so it yet. Good. We haven't done it yet. So that's that's fair. But the ones we've done, <laughs> the ones we've done, like the funniest movies are things like Superstar and Doug. Uh, Big right? Daddy? We haven't Dip? done it yet. American Dip. Pie? All right. Big Daddy. Superstar? Big Daddy. John Malkovich? All right, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold Mystery on. Men? Hold on, hold on. Galaxy of Bowfinger? Hold on, okay. This is incredible. Jiggle male jiggle Zach. Stuart Little. Zach, let's do this. Austin Powers. This guy who shagged me. Wild Wild incredible. West. Baby Genius. I don't know that we've ever had a guest on the boat like this before. I'm, I'm excited. All right, Zach. Inspector Gadget. We have- I mean, analyze this. <laughs> Come I on! I don't even know. What, good comedy here. All right, I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, you're being serious or not about? But let's. Okay. No, those are all great comedies no, from '99. No, they're not. What but, do you mean? But what? They're all from '99. They're all from '99. <laughs> Some of them are very, 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 very bad. But uh, that being said, we haven't done Big Daddy. We haven't done Galaxy <laughs> Quest. Which which people we can ha- see Zach's face right now. Be- being John Malkovich, which all excellent movies. I agree with you. Moving on. A lot of those are really bad, and some of them are fine. None of them are as 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 rich or layered as this, um, even close, except election. That's my. How dare you say that about Jawbreaker? <laughs> I, say, I, I, I haven't, I haven't that, seen Jawbreaker. I say that about Jawbreaker. I, here's what but, I'll say: I, I fall like somewhere analyzed, between the analyzed, two of you. You don't even know where I am, Phil. You don't even know where I am. You're, I know where you are. You're saying this and and election are the only two good comedies, and that I don't we've agree. Done. That we've oh, done. Okay, okay and I said that like six times, and apparently I've been yelled over every time. We haven't no. done Galaxy Quest. We haven't done Ben John Malkovich. We haven't done Big Daddy. Push those aside. No comment on that. The funniest and best movie we have done previously was Election. After that, what's the next one, Phil? 
the adventures of Elmo in Grouchland. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I would say. Have my, my, I think my point, Kenny, is more about the fact that I think you're painting with a broad brush. What's the next I think best one? I still think we've done some good comedies. What's on this the so next far. best one? I mean, Kenny, we both came around on fucking Spy You Shagged Me by Which, the end of that episode. Well, I, Unbelievable. Unbelievable film. It's a very bad film that we both thought was it's not, fine. It's not a very bad film. We, we, we came around and we said, it's fine like if you're gonna hang your head we've done better we, we have done there are other good comedies Dick this is year. a good comedy superstar is a good comedy uh, wild wild west i will it's a great comedy i will die dick, for a while i agree wild dick west. is great uh, oh the oh the, oh, the, oh the other actually good movie there's only one other actual good movie that we've done that's a comedy that's trans little Stuart little drop dead gorgeous but those are the only three good movies we've done good comedies like truly drop great gorgeous truly a great, great comedy truly yeah. great Job the door is truly great. Dick, very good. Superstar, very good. Dudley Do Right, excellent, obviously. So you're just going to um, piss in the face fucking of, great. What? Piss in the face of Mickey Blue Eyes. Yeah, oh, I will piss in its face. <laughs> I already did. Listen to the episode. I will definitely piss in his face. <laughs> I, I, I and, I, and, and I will piss in Annalise's face because it's a very bad movie. I think Bumfinger is great. NTV, it was a fun NTV is great too. A, you fucking love NTV. Not because it's funny. Because it's wonderful, but uh, <laughs> Bowfinger is Bowfinger is legitimately got one of the funniest scenes of 1999. And we're running all, across and, the fucking uh, across the we, freeway is unbelievable. This is not, guys. Okay, these are fine yeah. films. This is a yeah. down year for comedy. There is nothing on this level that is just joke after joke after layer after layer building on itself the entire movie, and you take and, and taking character moments the way Zach described in the beginning of the movie and building to these incredible crescendos at the end of the movie. Um, it's it, it's it, it exists for comedy you know, in sophisticated comedy in a way other movies don't. I speak. What about the one where the guy fucks the pie? I speak as a person who has a Deuce Bigelow side poster <laughs> on my desk. <laughs> I am very pro Deuce Bigelow. Fucking the pie is the worst, but I'm very pro everything. Like these are great movies yeah. that I love this year, but they're not funny the way Office Space is. And that's what okay. I'm getting at. Okay. These are a lot of movies that I did watch as a child. So I will say <laughs> but, Office Space is one of the ones I've seen in the last 10 years and it holds up very well. Me and John Malkovich and Election are also very sophisticated. And Galaxy Quest are very sophisticated movies. And I, don't I cannot think believe being John Malkovich got made. That's a crazy movie. It's the best. It's both. The best. It was, it was both of our favorite film of the year going into this year. Um, yeah. And everything about it is like flawless and perfect. But uh, yeah. and it's super sophisticated and everything is really funny and it's really a wonderful movie on like every single level. Uh, I agree. I, I think was Office it written Space for John Malkovich or did no? It was written for it was written for uh, Jeff, Jeff Goldblum, Goldblum actually. Yeah, that doesn't work because people know Jeff Goldblum too well. No. Yeah, I Malkovich agree. works. It's a funnier word. Yeah, Malkovich, Malkovich. Malkovich. I agree. Goldblum, Malkovich Goldblum Malkovich. doesn't work the same. It's not funny. Oh, it just sounds Goldblum, too nice. Goldblum. Um, and, and Goldblum, the thing about Goldblum is like he always is kind of funny. And yeah. like, like he's like the comic relief in Independence Day, and he's the, he's he's funny yeah. in Jurassic Park. And like, Malkovich was never funny. Malkovich was fuck. It, he's really funny in The Messenger, but Malkovich was serious as shit usually. It's true. Well, that's what makes it so great. It's I just know, like perfect. It's awesome. And this he's guy, the perfect like, guy, straight face becoming the world's best puppeteer. Too good. Okay. Um. So just just at this point of the movie, just so we you know, oh, oh, uh, we we're going to talk about Milton. Okay, yes, Milton. All right. <laughs> I'm worried about Milton. Yes. So I'm worried about Milton. And I've been worried about Milton. 
and I'm not going to lead, okay. th- lead this lead this discussion. I will just start the discussion by saying Milton in 2020 is harder to laugh at than he was in 1999. What are your thoughts? Correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's very succinct. How does that affect? I mean, I think I think from a from a that kind of from the 2020 perspective, this that's where the big flaws of this movie are. Is because like everyone with an arc is a white guy. And there aren't a lot of layered women. There aren't a lot of layered, you know, people of color. There, there's a, you know, this Milton's Milton. It's certainly not. It's certainly not though. Um, it, it's certainly not presenting the white male perspective as, or the white, kind of the patriarchy as something that should be, you know, adhered to or aspired to the way I think American Beauty does. It. Uh, I don't have. No, it's definitely attacking it. It's yeah, attacking it. I don't have such a problem with the the choice of like kind of using these male these these beta male avatars to make these points. Um, I I do just think that like let I mean just to be straight up, the joke about Milton is that he is mentally disabled, like mentally like that. That's what's happening in this movie. And that's what Stephen Root's playing, and. It's it's a weird thing. Like I don't want I I don't want to fall into the trap of saying like it's problematic now and like I'm ruining like people's childhood and making you feel better about laughing at Milton. But like you can't talk about this movie and just pretend that doesn't exist. So I don't. I I will say the joke for Milton is less that he's is less that he's uh you know has has some kind of like neuroatypical thing going on is how people treat him. I think the joke is how much, how shitty people are who take advantage of uh, that. I think that's most of the joke too, but I, I can't, I I guess they also mine a lot of laughs. Yeah. I can't get past the fact that like, you know, I can't get past the voice. I can't get past, I can actually, that's not the point. Like I can, but I can't ignore the, the voice. I can't ignore the muttering. I can't ignore the lack of social awareness. I can't ignore the lack of personal hygiene. I, these are, these are things that the, the, the joke is clearly on someone who is neurotypical, uh, in an office space where he can't play ball. Now he does like win the movie at the end to some extent, but it is just something that if you're making this movie today, you can have the Milton character be like kind of a, uh, Todd Luizzo in high fidelity type character and do all the same shit, you know, without having to play up this kind of situation he's in. I agree with all of that. Um, yeah. I'm going to divert us to the plot for a sec here. Just yeah, yeah, go right ahead. through the rest of this real quick. Um, basically, they come up with a scheme similar to from Superman 3 where they divert fractions of pennies into a bank account. Um, and uh, the- yeah, and they think that they've sort of avoided detection, they, blah, blah, blah. On the last, on Michael and Samir's last day at Inatech, Peter. Quick, one of the best parts of this movie, explicitly saying it's from Superman 3. Yeah. That's it's great. Fun. It's great. The yeah. worst fucking Superman. It's awesome. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen Superman. Oh, no, dude, you gotta just. Sit it, you gotta watch it. it. It's something else. There's nothing like it. It is okay. a. It is a farce. Yeah. <laughs> the fourth one is also real bad. Fourth one's a um, terrible movie, but three is yeah. like a. And then three's, three's the Richard Pryor one, right? Yes, and it's also the best yeah. episode of How Did This Get Made. 
it it had me crying listening to that. <laughs> Um, so on their last day at Inatech, Peter steals a frequently malfunctioning printer and they take it into a field and smash it to pieces. I mean, I would, I would argue that, you know, if, and when this film is put into the, uh, American national archives, um, this is the scene, right? Like this is the scene that, that puts you in the, in sort of classic territory. Um, then, uh, you know, Peter finds out about the rumors of Lumberg, whatever. Uh, he confronts Joanna. They break up about it. Um, then they realize that there's a bug in the code that Michael Bolton had, and it actually steals $300,000 in only a few days, oh, which is far more conspicuous. I always do that. <laughs> and uh, then they try to devise a plan to launder the money. They have to look up launder in the dictionary because they don't actually know what it means to launder something. Then Orlando Jones shows up, who's really quite funny in his in his one, I guess, two scenes that he has with them, um, where they think that he makes up a he's selling magazines door to door. And he makes up that he's uh, was hooked on crack so that people subscribe to more magazines. But he never did crack. Um, <laughs> he used to be a computer programmer at Inatrode. <laughs> um There's also the, the button to this scene you alluded to earlier, um, Zach, which I love. Which is Peter through the wall says, "Hey, Lawrence, want to come over?" And Lawrence says, "Nah, man, I don't want you fucking up my life," which I think is great. Um, and then Peter reconciles with Joanna. Uh, she's got this new job at the restaurant, which we mentioned, and you know, we've talked about the end of this already. Uh, and then it ends with Milton uh, uses the money from the checks to get a vacation in Mexico, or maybe move, or maybe move. Um, you know, we don't need to relitigate the end of this movie again, but I will say that, um, you know, talking with you guys about it, talking through all of this, I think that I'm much more on board with it now than I was before because I feel as though intellectually, I think I understand more of what Mike Judge was going for, even if emotionally and in my gut and similar to you, Kenny, in my bones, I'm not sure that it's entirely successful. I think that, um, it still has a lot to offer. So, you ready to rate it? I'm ready to rate it. You ready to rate it, Zach? Do you remember our rating system? I'll walk you through it just to, to remind you. Um, basically, we do zero to ninety nine. Zero being the lowest, ninety nine being the highest. We rate the film in ninety nine. We rate the film before this podcast and after this podcast to see whether or not the podcast changed your opinions on it one way or another. I'll go first, and you can think on this. Basically. In 99, I saw this film. I liked this film. I didn't see it in the theater. I think I probably saw it on video with my friends. Uh, thought it was quite funny, but I'm not sure that it made that much of an impression on me. It certainly didn't make the impression that it did on you, Kenny. I think it's probably back then I would have given it like a 68, something like that. Like I thought it was funny, but I didn't really love it. Watching it the other day, it's obviously a masterpiece. I mean, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal film. Um, even if I do have some slight, you know, um, issues with the ending, I think I'm probably putting it at like, I'm probably at an 82 or 83 now. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a great comedy. Uh, it didn't break into the nineties as I, I can only assume that it will for you guys, but, uh, I still really loved it. Yeah. It's going to break in the nineties for me. Zach, you want to go ahead? <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, I would say, um, I mean, back in the day, I think this was very, like, formative for me in terms... I mean, all these, like, 99 comedy movies were very formative. So I would say this was a 90 back then. And I would say re-watching it and now understanding the layers and having been through office culture and just, like, 
understanding it better from like a story structure perspective. I got to put this at a, say a 95 now. Uh, it's a great movie. I, I mean, I'm not I, fantastic flick. 99. Uh, this is absolutely one of my favorite movies. It was on my top 10 list at the begin, beginning of this year. Um, it's uh, as probably more than any movie, um, a movie I watched with my, my really, really close best friends who were not film nerds um, in any way. So this was a movie that we'd watch all the fucking time. And uh, I think I know basically every line to it. Um, pretty decent case to be made that it's my favorite comedy. I would give it a 99 wow. in 2000 and uh, in, in nine, I would give it a 99 in 2000, in, ni- in 99 when I first saw it. There's no question about it. Are you having a stroke? Are you okay? <laughs> the 99 in 99 really messed me up. But yes, I would give it a 99 in 99. Here's the thing. Yeah. I, even though I, I do think it's like one of my favorite comedies, I like it absolutely is one of my favorite comedies. I'm, I am going to go down from 99. Like I recognize this is not a perfect movie. And even though it's emotionally and like kind of spiritually as satisfying as anything mm-hmm. I can watch, which it is like, it's not a 99. It just isn't to me. That being said, it's not like I'm going down to like where Phil was in like the mid eighties. Before, Yuck. before the podcast, I gave it a 90. Yeah, boo. Total boo on my part. I fucking before the podcast, I gave it a 93. Uh, what I said was I love so, I love it so much, but I think the end is lacking, and I'm worried I'm gonna have a hard time defending Milton. Uh, after the discussion, mm-hmm. I'm gonna eat a worm. I'm gonna go up to 96. Uh, I don't think the ending is nearly as bad as I thought as I thought it was on the watch. I, I think it is basically about as good an, end, an ending as you get. And um Unlike most things that are kind of like in retrospect, kind of shitty, uh, I do think that this is something that when I show my kids, I'm not going to be that fucking thrilled about the built-in portrayal. So uh, that is the only thing that I'm, I am, I am knocking it down for. Right? I, I am just not going to be able to explain that some that these are people we used to add, we used to as a culture just laugh at in mass. Like that's just going to feel like shit. And because of that, yeah. that's the only thing that's like keeping it from a 99. Like 96 is pretty fucking great. And even the Milton stuff is pretty fucking great. It's just like, it's hard to say the heart was in the right place on that one. That's all, that's, that's <laughs> all I come down on. Um, I fucking love this movie. I fucking Ron, love Ron Livingston. When we do our 52 in review, it's going to have a, a, a big place for those awards. Um, expect nominations in every category. And, uh, I loved it. Thanks so much, Zach, for coming on, providing the the. We really, really, really appreciate it. Sorry that actually this actually is successful in comedy. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for having me. Who, who is who's a successful comedian? Uh, and 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 truthfully, like um, this was great getting to talk with a sketch writer about you know the, the the one of the things that this movie gets dinged with was really helpful too. Um, so I very much appreciate you coming on. Next week, we're actually doing fifty two in review. Next week, Kenny, uh, we are. We are. This is the last movie before 52 in review? Well, it's the last one before our Christmas episode. Under the So our 52 in review God. will probably come before our Christmas episode. Love it. All right. It's my favorite episode of the year. I look forward to it every yeah. year. As we record this in September. Well, whatever. <laughs> Nothing's good. Not to just any day in September, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's that, too. The 52 um, in review, for those who don't know, is every, Indeed. Uh, every year 
we Phil and I do our complete navel gazing. We look back at the last 52 movies we've done, replete with uh, nominations, both uh, Academy Award-esque and things that we make up in the moment. It is for us. It is not for you. But I hope you come and listen. For some reason, it does well. It does very well, actually, for us. People love listening to it. I always love doing it because it is like the one total indulgence we give ourselves every year. Yeah. Um, it's, we also have we got some big ones this year that's gonna you know we got election on there we got the insider, insider. we've got this like this is there's gonna be some big ones so yeah that's gonna be uh that's gonna be next week um and again you know zach thank you so much for being here uh for our listeners uh thank you to uh ernie for ernie and will for producing the episode to emilio for doing our social media to jan katas for doing our theme song and our artwork please rate review subscribe thank you so much for listening Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.